0: The old pilots, plane tails, bedknobs, and broomsticks. Whilst doing my research I often come across an aircraft that looks so weird it makes me stop and furrow my brow in confusion while I wonder what on earth was in the mind of the creator. Many were made as stepping stones to test and discover how to reach a goal, such as the Lunar Landing Research Vehicle. This unlikely-looking spidery creation was built by Bell Aerosystems to work out how to control the Lunar Lander that would ultimately take the Apollo astronauts on a well-controlled and successful landing on the Moon. The final phase of every lunar landing was a manually controlled descent and to gain the handling experience necessary to perform this tricky piece of flying the mission commanders started off with helicopter training. Apollo astronaut Kurt Mitchell said that for conventional aircraft the helicopter was the closest in flying characteristics to the lunar lander so if you didn't get helicopter training you weren't going. The training vehicle was a mess of aluminium trusses which surrounded a General Electric CF700 turbofan jet engine that was mounted vertically, pointing downwards and free to gimbal so that it could remain pointing straight downwards. The purpose of the engine was to get the unlikely-looking craft airborne to the test altitude and then be throttled back to support about 83% of the machine's weight. By doing this, it would allow the training vehicle to descend at a gentle rate which represented the lower level of gravity found on the moon. Once on this downward path, more Buck Rogers-like control systems then controlled the Lunar Lander trainer in a similar way to the real spacecraft. It had two hydrogen peroxide-powered lift rockets with variable thrust to control the rate of descent, and the extremities of this four-legged metal spider were adorned with 16 smaller hydrogen peroxide thrusters ...to allow the pilot to pitch, yaw and roll the machine. I often wonder if, with NASA's need for vast amounts of this volatile chemical... ...there was any shortage of blondes in the United States during this period. Hair products aside, the lunar landing test vehicles went through several iterations... The first two were built for research and a result of a $3.6 million contract, and after a number of test flights, the craft were fitted out with styrofoam representations of the actual lunar vehicle's cockpit and the lunar module's three-axis hand controller and throttle. As I've intimated, it was a strange-looking craft, with few redeeming features, but then, with an endurance of 10 minutes and a maximum speed of 40 miles an hour, it was never really intended as a mode of transport. Around the turbofan engine was a four-legged open metal framework, which contained an odd collection of round pressure vessels, pipes and wires, which fed the thrust rockets and reaction controls. Perched on what could loosely be described as the front was an ejector seat, open to the elements but in a three-sided box containing some simple controls and a few instruments tacked on. Despite the odd appearance, the LLRVs were very advanced using digital fly-by-wire technology. They relied exclusively on an interface with three analog computers to convert the pilot's movements to digital signals, which were then transmitted by wire to execute his commands. As an aside, the ejector seat was an interesting project all of its own. Although several years before Martin Baker had successfully built a 0-0 ejector seat, one capable of saving the pilot from a stationary aircraft at ground level, NASA chose Weber Aircraft to design and build them a seat for this remarkable flying machine. NASA and Weber had collaborated before when they built ejector seats for the Gemini space project, so perhaps it wasn't surprising. As an aside to this aside, the Gemini seat was itself very interesting. Despite the weight restrictions that the designers had to deal with, they included an ejector seat for two specific instances – The seat was designed to be used on the launch pad when it would fire the occupant on his back sideways through a hatch that was forced open by pistons and out of the capsule. It could also be used in the event of a parachute failure following re-entry. Back to the previous aside. The 00 seat Weber aircraft designed worked very well and was used safely on three occasions. By the time the first test vehicle was ready to train astronauts it had completed 198 flights without a major incident so it was shipped to Houston and made available for Neil Armstrong to begin flying. He made his first flight at the end of March but a little more than a month later on his 22nd flight he lost control when the multi-million dollar craft lost helium pressure causing a depletion of the hydrogen peroxide used to power the attitude thrusters. Gyrating around at a mere 200 feet above the ground, he was forced to eject, and with a second or two he was carrying out a short parachute descent into the scrub. Dragged by his parachute for a way, his only injury were some scratches to his handsome, steely-eyed rocket man test pilot face. Of interest, the accident investigation was carried out by the Aircraft Operations Office Chief, Joseph Algranti, an experienced LLRV pilot. Having carried out the investigation, he then subsequently lost control during a flight to expand the vehicle's speed envelope. After struggling to fly, he ejected only half a second before the vehicle hit the ground, an amazingly close call. Not exactly blessed with smooth aerodynamics, it appeared that the cockpit enclosure had caused a yaw that exceeded the power of the thrusters to control. This was simply cured by taking the roof off. There were two distinct modes of flight for the research vehicle, the LLRV, and the training vehicle, the LLTV. The basic mode was with the engine fixed, so that it always pointed downwards in relation to the body. In the gimbaled lunar sim mode, the engine was allowed to swivel and was kept orientated towards the Earth. This allowed the vehicle to tilt at the far greater angles that would be typical of hovering and manoeuvring above the lunar surface. Despite its ungainly appearance, the LLRV was equipped with an astonishingly sophisticated array of early sensors, including Doppler radar and computational hardware. The system had no specific name, but the effect it produced was called Lunar Sim Mode. This was the highest degree of hardware simulation and the purpose of the whole project. It wasn't a system to unburden the pilot, such as an autopilot does, nor was it meant to introduce any sort of safety or economy. The system's sole intention was to project the illusion of piloting the actual lunar module. You could think of it as a mixture of stability augmentation and an alteration of vertical acceleration according to the lunar gravity constant all accompanied by instantaneous corrective action. The LLRV's lunar sim mode was even able to counter wind gusts within milliseconds to give the impression of flying in a vacuum. The visually significant sign of an engaged lunar sim mode was the free gimbal turbo fan, always strictly pointing downwards towards the ground, regardless of the LLRV’s current attitude. This unique aircraft represented one of the few hardware simulators that actually became airborne. Bell built two research vehicles and three training vehicles, and they became an essential part of the astronaut's training. Astronaut Bill Anders described the LLTV as a much unsung hero of the Apollo program. Although Armstrong and Allegranti had to eject from the LLRV, no astronaut ever had to eject from the LLTV, and every lunar module pilot through to the final Apollo 17 mission trained in the LLTV and flew to a landing on the moon successfully. Armstrong himself said... That Eagle, the first lunar module to land on the moon, flew very much like the LLTV which he had flown more than 30 times at Ellington Air Force Base near the Space Centre. He made over 50 landings in the trainer and the final trajectory that he flew to the actual landing was very much like those he had flown in practice. He remarked that the trainer, by then nicknamed the Flying Bedstead, gave him a good deal of confidence, a comfortable familiarity. Now, NASA's Flying Bedstead wasn't the first ungainly test vehicle to gain that particular nickname. Over a decade before, a similar but slightly less sophisticated piece of flying scrap iron was built by Rolls-Royce. The company was experimenting with the concept of vertical takeoff and jet-borne flight, and under the guidance of Dr. Alan Griffith, they designed an unlikely aircraft which was excitingly called the Test Measuring Rig, or TMR for short. No wonder someone had to come up with a more memorable name, the Flying Bedstead. The name became so well established that it can be found on the official Government Ministry of Aviation Aeronautical Research Council reports. Whereas Bell Aerosystems built something resembling a scaffolding cube, the Rolls-Royce bedstead was elongated, more like a jet-powered shopping trolley. They both sat on spindly legs with castoring wheels but in the centre of the TMR was a solid mass of two Rolls-Royce Neen turbojets. The engines were mounted fore and aft, uh, as much as a front and back could be determined, facing each other, with their intakes outboard and all the thrust aimed into the centre of the machine. One might imagine that that would be a problem, except that the jetty flux was redirected to point downwards, one into a single nozzle and the other engine into a pair either side. The pilot perched, looking fairly precarious, on a platform affixed to the top. The ungainly machine flew from Hutnell Aerodrome in Nottinghamshire, but for a year its flying forays were constrained by a vast gantry which tethered the monster at various points to prevent it from moving out of a defined area or tipping over. An overhead cable could also cushion a heavy landing by restraining it during descent, however, within the limits of the rig it was free to fly. The test pilots regularly climbed up onto the back of the beast in the hope of taming it, and on the 3rd of August 1954, Rolls-Royce chief test pilot, Ron Shepard, drew the short straw and became the first to conduct a free flight. Without any stability augmentation, and controlled by firing compressed air out of the outrigger arms, he proved that it was possible to control the machine whilst it balanced on its jet engines. However, Flying the TMR was far from easy. It had marginal excess power, and the Neen engines had very slow response to throttle changes, which required a considerable degree of anticipation when controlling the height of the machine. Following the successful free flight test, the Bedstead was moved to the Royal Aircraft Establishment research facility at Bedford. The Ministry of Supply has now given permission to release the first films of the fabulous flying bedstead. Whisper of this extraordinary new flying machine reached us about 5 months ago. Designed for experiments in vertical takeoff, the Bedstead has two jet engines mounted end to end. Their exhaust It was here that it was fitted with an auto-stabilization system developed by the Instrument and Air Photography Department to determine if an artificial control system would be necessary for hovering the aircraft and investigating the requirements for achieving stable flight. During the stability trials, a great deal of data was obtained from the test pilots who flew it in repeatable maneuvers representative of an aircraft transitioning into hovering flight. The main problem that the pilots reported was keeping the TMR at a stable height, which was mainly due to engine response time. It was established that any future VTOL, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, would need an engine that responded quickly to the pilots' demands. Despite its rather crude beginnings, by the time the bedstead had been modified by the RAE, it was becoming quite sophisticated. Whilst the engine and yaw controls were manual, the pitch and roll controls were entirely electrically signalled with triple redundancy in case of a failure. However, despite the improvements, it remained an extremely tricky aircraft to fly. What's more, there was no provision made to abandon the machine as it flew before the Zero Zero ejector seat had been developed. A second flying bedstead had been built, XK-426, and a number of pilots were being instructed in VTOL techniques. Amongst these was Wing Commander Henry Larsen, a New Yorker of Danish origin who had become naturalised as a British subject. Apart from being a difficult aircraft to control, the Bedstead only had six minutes of fuel. Larson landed in a hurry and, despite being tethered to a crane, tipped the machine over against a gantry and was sadly crushed to death. The Rolls Royce thrust measuring rig was a stepping stone in the development of the Hawker Harrier, by far the most successful vertical takeoff and landing fighter until the introduction of the F 35B Lightning II which actually is only touted as a short takeoff and vertical landing machine. The Harrier served with many air forces, including those of India, Italy, Spain, as well as the United States Marine Corps. Whilst the Harrier was a remarkable aircraft, its achievements pale into insignificance when compared with the success of NASA's lunar landing module that took the first men to the moon. Both machines can still be viewed, the British iron bedstead XJ314 at the Science Museum in London and the American luxury mattress version at the United States Air Force Flight Test Museum at Edwards Air Force Base. I still find it amusing to think that both projects started off in a machine that could well have starred in a Walt Disney production and I sometimes wonder if the test pilots had to speak the special spell. Traguna, Macoides, precorum satis D. Substitutiary locomotion before they flew. If you enjoyed this story, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Violet Guy show. You can find us at AirlineVioletGuy.com.